All right, good morning. How are we doing today? Good? Great. Well, if you are new with us, uh, welcome. We're in week three of a new sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Say to the Church? Uh, We are asking the question, what is Jesus's message to Hope Covenant Church in 2014? And to answer that, we're looking at the book of Revelation in chapters two and three, uh, where 2,000 years ago, Jesus uh, dictated through John of Patmos seven short letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And so for the past few weeks, uh, we've been going letter by letter looking at each of these. Uh, week one, remember, we looked at the church uh, in Ephesus, and we found out there that Jesus' message to them was to return to their first love, to return to Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the church in Smyrna, a persecuted church. And Jesus' message to them was to stay faithful in the midst of suffering. And today we're going to turn to the third letter, to the third church of Pergamum. But before we do, will you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word that you would clear our minds. I pray that you would clear our minds of any distractions, of any hindrances, of any things that are going on in our life that would keep us from listening to what you have to say to us. May you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in uh, college, I used to fly into the O'Hare International Airport several times a year. And uh, when I flew into the airport, I would take a couple escalators down uh, underneath the airport where the O'Hare train station was. And once I was there, I'd get on the blue line going downtown, and after a couple stops, if I was looking in the right direction, I could see it off in the distance. I could see the glorious Chicago skyline, these skyscrapers, there's 1,200 of them all clustered together, stretching all the way up to the heavens, stretching all the way up to the skies. Uh, Sometimes if it was a cloudy day, uh, the tops of them would actually be... uh, covered with clouds. The Hancock Building, the Sears Tower, you couldn't even see them because they were so high, because it was so uh, magnificent. And approaching the ancient city of Pergamum was kind of like that. You could see the ancient city of Pergamum from miles and miles away. And the reason for this was because at the middle of the city, there was this gigantic hill that was about a thousand feet tall, and on top of that hill were ancient skyscrapers, pagan temples that were these gigantic temples that were built on top, and then wrapping around, there's actually a Roman amphitheater that sat 10,000 people. And below this hill in the city, there was 160,000 residents. So there was 160,000 people that lived in the ancient city of Pergamum. Pergamum was located uh, north of Smyrna and Ephesus, the other two cities we've looked at. It was located 15 miles inland, 15 miles east of the Aegean Sea. And what really set this uh, city apart from the other ones was that it was the political and religious capital of all of Asia. It was the political capital of all of Asia for the Roman Empire. This is where the governor had his seat. This is where politics happened for Asia. It was also the religious capital of this area. They had a a large pantheon of gods, but in addition to that, it was the center of imperial Roman worship. You see, the, the, in, the, in the first century, the emperors, those people who were in charge of all the politics in the day, were deified, and they were worshipped as Lord and Savior, and it was in this city of Pergamum that was the center of that. So that's the church that lives in this city. 
John and Jesus talk about it in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 and following. If you brought your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to turn there. We're going to be in Revelation, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will also be on the screen, and it's in your sermon guides as well. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this ancient city of Pergamum is described as the city where Satan lives. It's described as the city where the throne of Satan is. All throughout the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire is described as satanic. This industrial, religious, political empire that persecutes the church, that opposes God, that sets up false God, is described as satanic. It's described as evil. And in the city of Pergamum, this is the throne of the political and religious empire of its day. It's the throne of Satan. This is the reason that believers like Antipas are being martyred for their faith. But Jesus commends this church. He says, you're doing well. He says, you're doing good. He says, you are being faithful in the midst of suffering. And he praises them for that. He commends them for that. But you see, Satan is very, very crafty. He's not just the persecutor of the church. He's also the seducer of the church. And in Pergamum, he was seducing this church with the fleeting pleasures of sin, with the fleeting pleasures of the city. Notice in verse 14 to 16. Nevertheless, although you are holding fast in persecution, I have a few things against you. I've got a couple things we've got to talk about here. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These are false teachers who are in this church. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them, the the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus is saying here that there are some among them, there are some within this church that hold to the teaching of Balaam. Well, what is that? What is the teaching of Balaam? Well, if you remember from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 25, it tells the story of the Israelites on their way to the promised land, and they're going up by Moab, and King Balak of Moab uh, wants uh, the Israelites crushed. He doesn't like them. And so what he does is he hires a prophet. He hires this prophet named Balaam. He says, Balaam, I want you to go curse the Israelites. I'm done with them. I don't want them in my land. But Balaam isn't able to curse the Israelites. He won't do it. But he still wants a paycheck. So he goes back to King Balak and he says, guess what? I got a different approach. I got another approach that will help take down the Israelites. Here's what we're going to do. And he offers him an ancient version of the honey trap. And so what King Balak does is he sends Moabite women to sexually entice Israelite men. And it works. It works just like it does many times today, right? And what ends up happening is not only is Israel committing sexual morality, they begin worshiping the gods of the Moabites. This entire nation is drawn in to worshiping Yahweh and Baal and these other Moabite gods and goddesses. And in Pergamum, the Nicolaitans, these false teachers, were leading the church into similar sins. 
There were a small group of teachers who had a teaching very similar to the teaching of Balaam. That is, they were compromising with the surrounding culture. They were mixing the morality of God with the morality of man. And our texts give us two examples. It gives us two examples uh, of meat and sex. Now, meat and sex are two uh, wonderful, terrific things if they're used uh, in the right context, right? There's nothing wrong with meat and sex. God loves them. He gave them to us. Uh, But if they're misused, there's a lot of potential harm, and that's what's happening in this church. The text says that uh, they were eating food sacrificed to idols. They were buying and consuming idol meat at work parties and in the marketplace. They were buying meat that they knew was sacrificed in these pagan temples, and they were thereby financially supporting paganism and Satan's work in the city. Jesus says, stop it. Don't do that anymore. But they were doing something else as well. They were committing sexual immorality. They were committing sexual immorality. God's best for sex was very hard for them to understand. God's design for sex is radically countercultural. God's design for sex is for it to be in the context of a loving relationship between one man and one woman who are committed to each other for a lifetime. And when sex happens there, sex is kind of like this. It's kind of like a fire in a fireplace, right? I love fires and fireplaces. They put off light and they put off heat and they put off warmth right? They're a blessing to us. But if you take that same thing, if you take sexual pleasure, if you take sexual activity, and you place it outside the bounds of a loving, committed relationship, that same fire turns into this, turns into a burning house, turns into this dangerous and destructive force that ruins lives, that ruins thoughts, that ruins families, that breaks up cultures, that breaks up nations. And in Pergamum, the Nicolaitans were setting houses on fire. They were teaching that sexual activity was acceptable before marriage, after marriage, with temple prostitutes, at drunken parties, at these orgies that they would have. And all of this was part of the social fabric of the city. This kind of sexual activity was allowed by the culture of the day. See, the problem for this church is they had lost their edge. They had lost their separateness with the surrounded culture. They had lost their ability to say no. And instead, they were making excuses. They're saying, but everybody eats idol meat. We get it at a better price. Why not? But everybody has sex before marriage. What's the big deal? You can't expect me to wait for that. But everybody sleeps around a little bit. Of course it's acceptable. They were making excuses. Of course God will forgive me. And the problem for these people is that they had forgotten God's call for his church to be holy, to be hagias, which means to be separate, to be different, to be unique, to reflect the character of God in this world, to be in the world, yes, but not of the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think our situation today is remarkably similar. The temptation for us to compromise, every single one of us, is something that we face on a daily basis. The temptation for you to combine Jesus's values with cultural values, with your school's values, or your work's values, or the city's values, is, 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 is huge. It's all over the place. 
I think that compromise is one of the biggest problems for the church today. There's a lot of false teachings out there. There's legalism, there's a prosperity gospel, there's escapism that we should live in little Christian bubbles. But the most seductive teaching of them all, the one that flies under the radar, the one that is more caught than taught, is this belief that Jesus does not require you and I to be holy. It's this belief that Jesus does not require you and I to be faithful, that there's no sacrifice involved in following Jesus, and that is a lie straight from Satan. And it breaks the Lord's heart when he sees his church looking just like the world, when he sees us ignoring abuse and pornography, materialism and gossip. It shouldn't be this way. Compromise is dangerous, and compromise is all around us. This is exactly why I believe that Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum is so relevant for us today. It's so potent. It's so prophetic. He starts out in verse 16, and he starts out with this word. He says, repent. Repent. Now, repent is kind of a weird word, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it's kind of a strange word. It's kind of a church word. Uh, When my girls do something wrong, I don't bend down to them and say, honey, uh, you really need to repent. You know, they, what are you talking about, Dad? They, I don't use that kind of language. Uh, if you were at work this week and uh, maybe you miss a deadline or you drop the ball on a project and your boss calls you into work, uh, your boss calls you into his office, imagine if he looked at you and said, uh, I really need you to repent because you're not meeting my expectations. Does he say that? No, yeah, that would be a weird way to talk. Uh, if, if a police officer pulled you over uh, for speeding or for doing something worse, he's probably not going to use the R word, right? It's, it's kind of a churchy word. It makes us think uh, about judgment and being bad and that kind of thing. But when Scripture talks about repentance, it's very clear. The, the idea of repentance is that we are walking in one direction and we stop, we turn, we make a 180, and we walk in the other direction, It's about turning. It's about turning from our self-centeredness. It's about turning from our bad behavior. It's about turning from our poor choices. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives them. For the past two weeks uh, at our house, we have been watching a uh, small dog. When I say small, about the size of a cat. It's a Pomeranian dog, and her name is Delilah. And uh, a little background here, we've never had a dog before. So we're kind of learning how to how to do this. Kelly has, but uh, the rest of our family hasn't. So the other day, uh, Adeline is playing with Delilah, and she thinks nobody's looking. And so what she does, she picks up Delilah, and she throws her off the couch. And and the dog just starts flying through the air. Thankfully, uh, Delilah was okay. She wasn't hurt. Uh, But, you know, after Adeline got in trouble, uh, what happened is Adeline realized that she needed to repent, right? She needed to turn, and so she confessed her sin to Delilah and to mommy and daddy, and for the past five days, there have not been any flying dogs in our house. Praise the Lord. So repentance is about turning from one direction and going in another, and when the Bible talks about repentance, it talks about it in two ways. It talks about initial repentance and continual repentance. Two different things, initial repentance and continual repentance. Initial repentance begins with the observation that all of us miss the mark. Maybe you don't throw dogs in your house, but you do something else, right? You do something else, and you know what that is. All of us are self-centered in some way. All of us uh, don't do things like we ought to. There's this, this poison, this disease that's inside of us, and in our most honest moments, we realize that. 
And we realize that it ruins our relationships. And the Bible tells us that this disease is called sin, and sin interrupts and ruins our relationship with the holy God. But the good news is that God loves us so much that he has done something to fix that. He has launched a rescue plan. And 2,000 years ago, he sent Jesus Christ into this world to take on flesh and to live among us and to show us how to live and to die for our sins and be resurrected three days later and to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God where he now reigns in power and majesty and honor. And the Bible says that if you and I will repent will turn from our self-centeredness and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and commit to following him, he will wipe away all of our sins and he will make us new and he will adopt us into his loving family. The book of Acts talks about this. The book of Acts talks about repentance. In chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Repent or turn and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is king. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's about turning from our path and joining God's path. Some of you here today are in need of spiritual refreshment. You're in need of Jesus. Some of you here today have never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You've thought about it, you've considered it, but something has held you back. And if that's where you're at today, I just want to encourage you. I want to plead you to come forward after the service. Talk with one of uh, our altar team members and cross that threshold and say yes to Jesus. Begin a new life. It's the most important decision you will ever make, but it's also the best decision you could ever make. And you could talk to any one of us. You could talk to hundreds of people in this church who will test to that fact. Following Jesus begins with initial repentance. So that's the first kind. The other kind is continual repentance. And that's what Jesus talks about uh, in verse 16 of our chapter. He talks about continual repentance. You see, turning from sin isn't just something we do at the beginning of our faith journey right here. It's something that we continue to do all throughout our faith journey. We continue to turn from sin all throughout our faith journey. The famous uh, reformer Martin Luther In 1517, a very, very long time ago, said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. When he said repent, Jesus meant it's an entire life thing. It's not just a a, a one and done thing. It's an entire life thing. Turning from sin, turning from compromise is something that we never outgrow. We're called to daily, monthly, sometimes hourly confess our sins and turn from our sins. And when we do this, it leads to a dependency on God's grace and his mercy and his love. I want to give us uh, three invitations this morning from our text. If you're following along in your sermon guides, we're on the back side. Uh, And the first invitation has to do with this idea of repentance, and it's this. We are called to turn from compromise. We are called to turn from compromise. In verse 13, Jesus says, repent therefore. The Pergamum Christians were called to change directions. They were called to turn from wrongly abusing meat and sex. And likewise, you and I are called to turn from compromise, to turn from duplicity, to turn from those areas that are out of sync with God's best. At work, in your family, in your private thoughts, behind closed doors, when no one is watching, are there areas in your life that are out of sync with God? 
Are there areas in your life where you know that you've been compromising, where you know you've been making excuses or trying not to think about your sin? If so, God's invitation is very simple. Repent. Turn. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the first step in this process of repentance. It's turning from our sins. It's confessing our sins. It starts here, but it doesn't end here. You see, anytime we turn from sin and compromise, what it does is it creates a vacuum in our hearts that something else has to fill. This is why it's not enough just to stop bad behavior. This is why it's not enough just to to, to purge the wrong things we do or something like that. Think about it this way. If you want to stay away from junk food and, and get healthier, Uh, Stop eating Wendy's and Dunkin' Donuts and Pizza Hut. Start there, but also replace that food with wholesome and nutritious food that's going to make you healthy. Replace that food with the kind of food that's going to make you not want that other kind of food. See, we have to replace the bad with the good. We have to replace the bad with the good, and the same holds true for our relationship with God. It's not enough to stop sinning. We need to start worshiping. We need to turn from compromise and turn toward Jesus. And this is the second invitation for us this morning. It's to turn toward Jesus. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Revelation 4 and 5. And there we find this throne room scene that tells us exactly how we can turn to Jesus. I want to read to you a few passages uh, that I just kind of took uh, intermediately intermediately, uh, through chapters 4 and 5. So I direct your attention to the screen. And there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones with 24 elders. In the center around the throne were four living creatures worshiping. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering in the millions saying, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So in this vision, uh, we have here a throne with somebody sitting on the throne. And uh, this is a designer throne, compliments of Tina Marie. Thank you very much. Uh, And uh, the picture, the vision that John has is around this throne are these concentric circles that just keep building and building and building. Immediately around the throne, there's these 24 elders. And then out after that, there's these four living creatures. And then there's this multitude of angels. And then there's all of the creatures in all of heaven, and they're all circling the throne. It's as if somebody's in the back just kind of flipping on lights, and John's watching this take place. And all of a sudden, he sees there's this big section. Oh, wait, no, there's an upper deck to this thing. No, it's a a stadium, and the entire stadium is looking here. The entire stadium of millions and millions of creatures has their energy and their focus directed at the center because they know that the person who sits on the throne is higher than anyone else because everyone knows that the action is here. This is what turning to Jesus is all about. It's about joining this chorus in worship. It's about participating with what's going on in heaven on this throne. And if we could get a hold of that, friends, it absolutely changes everything. Why do we gather here once a week? We gather here once a week to remind ourselves that there's a center of the universe and we're not in it. 
And there's a psychological power to all of us remembering that together. Why do we sing songs at church? It's not because we like the sounds of our voices. Why do we sing songs at church? We sing songs at church to remind ourselves of our proper place in the cosmos. Because oftentimes we forget. And it's really good for us to remind ourselves of our proper place in the cosmos. Because sometimes what we tend to do, what I tend to do, is I begin to think that this is my chair, right? And I sit down and I get comfortable and I I become a little bit judgmental, become a little bit critical of some of you. I think you deserve this and you deserve that. And I begin to think that this entire universe spins around Brandon. And then I come in this place. And I sit in that chair side by side with you all worshiping Jesus and God comes to me and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, Brandon, you're sitting in my chair. You don't need that weight upon your shoulders. You don't need that burden. I got this. What I want you to do is to worship me. What I want you to do is to bring glory and honor and praise to my name. That's what God calls us to do. Why do we gather here every week? Well, we gather here, in part, to get the right perspective, to, so, so that we can remember that the worship service doesn't start at 9 a.m. and end at 10.15 a.m., or in our case, it doesn't start at uh, 10.45 or 10 and end at 12. The worship service started infinity ago, and at 10.45, we're just joining in with what's been going on for a very, very, very long time. See, we don't start it, we join it, Right? We don't start this thing, we join this thing. We join it publicly on Sunday mornings. We join it privately when we're reading our Bibles, when we're praying, when we're being Jesus with skin on to those around us. And one of the reasons that we do that is to get a better vision of the one who sits on the throne. Because when we get a better vision of the one who sits on the throne, it ruins us for the ordinary. Because when we are worshiping Jesus, we don't want to compromise. We don't want anybody else's life. We don't want the cheap thrills and the short-lived dreams that the world has to offer. We don't want to combine Christ values and Christ morality with the world's value. All we want to do is worship Jesus. All we want to do is be faithful to our King. That's why we do it. That's why we gather here. That's why we read our Bibles. Friends, you can confidently turn to Jesus and worship this morning because he's the one sitting on the throne. And because of that, you're in good hands. It's the second invitation for us today. It's to turn to Jesus and worship. The third invitation is for all of us to receive the gifts of God. To receive the gifts of God. Uh, in every single letter addressed to the seven churches, in Revelation 2 and 3, there's gifts that are associated with those who are victorious and to those who overcome. To those who overcome, they're given things. Jesus gives them gifts. And in our text, two gifts are mentioned in verse 17. Look with me at Revelation 2:17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice churches is plural here. He's not just talking to Pergamum, he's talking to all churches and all time. To the one who is victorious, I will give a hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. So Jesus says here that to the one who's victorious, to the one who does their best to resist compromise and to turn to Jesus, he will give that person hidden manna and a white stone. 
But what's this hidden manna all about? Well, if you remember in the Old Testament when Israel was in their wilderness wanderings, it says that one day they were just kind of walking down and then out of the sky fell bread. And then it just started raining bread all over the desert. And this was manna. This was food that was feeding the people of God. It was food that God was giving them. And scriptures tell us later on in Jewish history that uh, the Israelites looked forward someday to a new Messiah who would bring a new manna. And the Gospels talk about this in John 6. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. See, Jesus is manna 2.0. He's the new manna. He's the improved manna. And if you partake of him, you'll be fully satisfied. And how do we partake of the new manna? Well, we partake of the new manna over here and over here. We partake of the new manna when we ingest communion, when we participate in the body of Christ, when we are mysteriously spiritually fed by God at the Lord's table, when we remember the death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. That's when we partake of the hidden manna. Later on in the service, all of us will have the opportunity to do that. What's this other gift? A white stone with a new name on it. What's that talking about? Well, in the ancient world, there was a custom of guest of feast being given a white stone with their name on it as a ticket of admission. And so you'd get invited to, to this, you know, really uh, large banquet or feast or party. And uh, if it was a really big one, and if they were really wealthy, what they would do is they would go find a white stone, which were really rare in Pergamum, they had mostly black stone there. So they get a white stone and they would write your name on it and they would give it to you. And when you arrived at the party, you would hand your ticket of admission to the bellboy and go in. And that's probably the background here. Faithful Christians, you and I, will receive a ticket of admission to the great feast in heaven, to the messianic banquet table. You and I will receive entrance into the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? Aren't you looking forward to that day when Christ will hand you a white stone and say, come on in, join the party. And on this stone, it says that there's a new name on it. All throughout the scriptures, God gives people new names, right? Uh, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Saul becomes Paul. And the text says that Jesus will give you and I a new name. But that new name will be secret. Only he will know it. And only we will know it. He promises us an intimate relationship with himself. Now, oftentimes, uh, lovers have secret names or pet names for one another. Married couples, you know what I'm talking about? Honey, sweetie, babe, uh, love muffin, boo. Anybody use boo? Uh, Ducky, funny honey, hot pants. I like that one. Uh, Jelly belly. Any jelly belly lovers in here? No? Uh, Snookums. Anybody use snookums? All right, you guys are just not admitting it. I know you guys have pet names for one another, uh, but you won't tell me what it is, but that's okay. See, the point is, when we use these names for one another, they convey a sign of closeness, right? They convey a sign of intimacy between us and our partner. And when Jesus says that he'll give us a secret name, he's saying he'll give us this, this special kind of intimacy, this special kind of spiritual union the special kind of love between us and him where he calls us by a name that only we know, that nobody else knows. 
Jesus is saying with these gifts from God, you don't need to be sexually promiscuous because I want to give you real, genuine, lasting intimacy. You don't need to be malnourished by hatred and fear and rage and self-indulgence because I got the good stuff. I got the bread of life. All we need is the hidden manna. All we need is King Jesus. He's what our souls are starving for. He's what makes us healthy. He's what makes us whole. He's what makes us satisfied. And this morning, I want to invite each and every one of us to turn from the areas of compromise in our life and to turn towards King Jesus in worship, and to make him the throne, or to put him on the throne of each and every one of our hearts. Will you please pray with me?